presents everyone welcome back to another episode of the music and photography podcast i'm billy sanford and today i'm excited to be talking to dan milner dan how are you doing i am alive so i'm doing <laughs> fine thanks for asking absolutely that's good news so this uh you know just to set the stage a little bit this idea of exploring music and photography and sort of the creative opportunities that these things allow for people is not a new concept, but I like talking to creative people. And of course, a lot of the work that you do with Blurb or workshops or on your YouTube films or, or on your own podcasts involves you encouraging people in their creativity or kind of sharing the benefits of your insight and experiences. So for you, you know, you've worn a lot of hats, many of them photography related, and that story begins with photojournalism, right? So can you tell us a little bit about how all that got started for you? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's funny what, what happens when you look back in history. Sometimes you do things at the time, you think you're doing them for one reason, but you realize decades later that it was something else. And for me, it was, I started when I was in elementary school, I had a notebook and a pencil and I would write short stories and I would write, I would write down overheard dialogue from all the adults around me. I don't really know why, but I kind of felt this need. I just obsession to record things. Mm -hmm. And then um, when I was in probably in middle school, somehow I got my hands on a Vivitar point and shoot 35 millimeter camera. And I, I thought it would be really funny to go around and photograph adults from the back, right at like butt level. So I, <laughs> I would just, it didn't matter who it was strangers. Uh, my brother was racing motorcycles. I'd go to the track and like get people there. I'd go to the store with my mom. I'd get people there. I'd get family. And I, my mom would drop the film off at the 24 hour or the, the one hour film lab when she was getting groceries and she would never look at any of the images. She would just give me the pack of prints. And so I took one of these family photo albums we had and I took out all the family photos and I put in all these butt shots of, of people. <laughs> I left it out on the coffee table at home. I didn't say anything to anybody. And my parents would have like guests over and they would see it and they'd pick it up and people just started laughing. And I was like, oh, this is really good. I can make people laugh, you know, with the with the camera. And then, but the residue of what I wasn't really thinking about at the time was my grandfather on my father's side was a journalist for the Fort Wayne Journal Gazette. He was a columnist for about 30 years. He wrote a column called Lines and Angles. And okay. 
and journalism was and writing was sort of in our in our bloodstream and so the writing really came natural and then once i found the camera it was just sort of a natural progression to go from writing to adding in the camera as a secondary sort of uh doc basically just a, a way to document things right and i i was intending to go in another direction i was going to study geology go to a school i was i was on a i had a chance to be on a, a shooting team shot shotgun shooting team so we would be mm -hmm shooting in the US really all over the world and um, I was like yeah I'll take the scholarship I'll do the shooting and I'll study geology and there was a mix up with incoming students uh, transfer paperwork this the school that I was going to attend lost like half of the incoming transcripts it was pre-digitization and the dean of admissions called my mom and said we have no record of him so it's too late for him to get in the semester just have him go somewhere else community college for a semester take transferable classes and then come in and he can start here next quarter and the only school left open was san antonio college and i got there and i had started carrying a camera around just for just for fun and i was making pictures of all kinds of things including like spot news at a big flood where there was a school bus being washed away and a chopper coming in to try to save these kids and I was just standing there and I thought, you know, this would probably be a good time to use the camera. So uh, one of the journalism instructors at San Antonio College, a guy named Jerry Townsend, saw the images. I was showing my friends at lunch and he was walking by and he looked over and said, who shot these? And I was like, oh, no, you know, I'm sure I did something wrong here. And so I was like, not me. They're not mine. <laughs> and then I thought, I thought, oh, my friends are going to get in trouble. So I said, OK, I did it. I took them. And <laughs> Jerry was a really influ influential guy for me. He he just said, look, I'll give you a scholarship to be a photographer if you want to do that. Mm -hmm. So I never went to the other school. I never picked up a shotgun again. I just picked up a camera and that was it, man. And it's just, you know, there's that weird hunt for news, hunt for story that it never goes away. It just, it's, it's, I, I feel the desire to do it now as, as much as I did that day, even though I don't get to do it very often now. Right. It, it's just this insatiable thing this hunt a quote you mentioned uh, recently was uh, lester bangs from almost famous you you yeah. do it because you can't not do it yeah you know just staying up i love the lester bang quote of just staying up at night just writing dribble but just for the sake of of because you can't not do it and it's right. uh, and i think that's i mean everybody comes to photography from different directions and i don't think there's any one direction that's better or more right than the other but i think that there's a certain thing about journalism in particular that is a unique kind of fever right. that people have and i mean i was just reading an article about the journalist in vegas that was killed a few months ago uh, the investigative journalist and you know if you read about his career and the sort of things that he exposed how dangerous that was how difficult every single step of the way you've got everybody just going no 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 and he's just like, I'm going to get this story. I'm going to get it. And it works the same for photographers. You know, you just there the, the pressure involved in a big daily newspaper to the pressure to perform is both horrifying and motivating. It just chews right. you. It chews you up because you can never quite get out in front of the wave. You're just constantly you know if you do well today you do well this morning this afternoon is a whole different story and it's weird it's a strange addiction to that sort of pressure that um journalism in particular brings with it and it's also to me the ultimate training ground for being a photographer New newspaper, 
Newspaper people never get the credit they deserve, but man, if you can perform in that environment day in, day out, it's such a hugely pressure-filled environment that I shot weddings for five years and people talk about the pressure at weddings. Mm -hmm. It's it's nothing compared to journalism. I'll bet. And it starts over fresh every day, right? It does. And it can, it can, I was just thinking about this yesterday. You know, you go in in the morning and there's a little wire basket with your name on it and you have a, a stack of assignments and mm -hmm. it, it could be like, for example, I'll give you a typical day. Like you're, you're assigned for, you know, the mayor of Phoenix is 25 years old and that's a novelty. So we want you to spend the whole day shadowing the mayor of Phoenix. So in the limo, in his car, at his house, when he gets up in the morning, all the way through. And then about two hours into the shoot, you get a 911 page that says, you know, Don Amici died. And his funeral is being held today, and the person who was going can't go. And so you have to be there at whatever, 1 p.m. And so you're like, crap. So I need to, I need to, I can shoot here for another hour. And then I have to go to this funeral. And then an hour before you're supposed to leave, you get another 911 page that says there's a huge water main break downtown. And you cover the water main break, then go to the funeral, then go back to the mayor. And so you're shooting 100 speed transparency film in bright daylight and in inside in vehicles, in offices, which means you have to filter the lens, gel the strobe, your exposure has to be dead on, then you're, you're covered in mud and water from the water main break, and then you have to go to a celebrity funeral. And right. everyone's mad at you because you're not dressed appropriately, and you're like, just get me out of here, I just gotta make a picture. And that's like a Tuesday, you know? <laughs> right. And, and every day, and then at night after work, because I was young and I was hungry and I was trying to to do more, I had a police scanner and I would leave the paper, drive straight down Central Boulevard into the southern half of Phoenix, which at the time was a really wild place. It was a lot of like violent activity, gang activity, homicides, domestic violence, that kind of stuff. And I would pull over, turn the scanner on, and then I'd spend from, so I, my shift was three to 11. And if it didn't make the, if you, if it wasn't like something incredible happening, it wasn't going to make the paper after about 730. You know, right. they would they would have to like hold the presses to get it in after that. So by about eight, eight thirty, I could head down Central Boulevard and just it was just mayhem. It was mayhem. Right. There was structure fires and homicides and and just craziness that I shot night after night after night. I just built this big file of sort of what was really happening in the city of Phoenix. And mm -hmm. you know, the paper had no stomach for that whatsoever. They just didn't <laughs> on any of it you know they're like that's not going to help advertising if we're running like domestic you know homicides right. so but as a photographer it was like i just couldn't get enough of it so what was kind of the long plan at that point early on what i mean was that something you wanted to do for your whole career or was it a sort of a stepping stone stepping stone i wanted to be i thought i wanted to be a war photographer i thought i wanted to cover wars okay. and the more that I got around like really, uh, you know, bad situations in America and also traveling on my own, doing other projects, you know, getting shot at a few times. And you're like, that's not a whole lot of fun. And, no. <laughs> but also my, you know, I recognize the people who were the stars of war photography at that time, the guys like Jim Nachtway, they were in a world class by himself. And, and Nachtway to me was a peculiar guy, probably still is. I don't know him very well. I met him a few times very peculiar guy, like a guy that's not going to let you in very easily and very guarded and also just driven beyond comprehension of like how, what you have to do to do that kind of work. 
And what I realized was I was more interested in the why. Mm -hmm. Like, how did the Balkans, you know, for example, the war in the Balkans, how was it Monday, everything was fine. And Tuesday, neighbors who'd been neighbors for years were shooting at each other. And I was like, wow, this is not a third world remote country. This is in the middle of Southern Europe, basically. And you've got this full on incredible civil war that's and, and also looking at things like the Iran Iraq war and saying, I'm more fascinated by how this situation came to be. What, what's the history here? What are the politics here? What's the long play? Not the frontline action stuff. I just realized I don't think I'm cut out for that kind of thing. Right. You know, I want to be a documentary photographer. I don't necessarily want to be a photojournalist. And my shift started going from, you know, the Nactways of the world to the Salgados of the world. Right. Just looking at Sebastian Salgado, Gene Smith, and just going, man, you know, this is what I want to do books. Right. I want to do coffee table books of these long stories. Tony Schwa did a book. Um, uh, I forget what it's called. It's in the other room right on top of my stack right now for whatever reason. It was about the fall of the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. Ten years, like a 35 black and white reportage. I saw that book um, and I was like, wow, Maggie Stieber's Dancing on Fire covering the uh, Duvalier regime in, in Haiti. And I was like, this is, you know, Maggie came to our school and taught a class. They wouldn't let me take it, but my roommate took it. And I was, you know, got the residue of what she was doing. And I was like, I want to be like her. I want to do what she's doing. Right. Yeah. And that's a good foreshadowing because I wanted to ask you about that book. But before we get too far down the path, I mentioned at the top music and photography. A lot of people are interested in both. I think a lot of creative people are interested in a lot of things and this is true for you too right because you do youtube films that don't touch on photography at all they talk about cycling or fly fishing or you're an avid reader and journalist uh at journaling mm -hmm. and and yoga and i and i guess i was curious first how all of these other interests play into your own kind of creative thought process and 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 has this been a common trait in other creative people you know, that they have a, a, a diverse range of interests? For sure. But I think they're, in all honesty, when I go back to the time from about 1989 to about mm -hmm. 2000, wow, let me think about this, 2007, mm -hmm. it was only photography. That's all I did. That's all I thought about. That's all I didn't read. I mean, I read, but a little bit. I wasn't cycling because I was living in LA. I wasn't running because I was in LA. I wasn't fly fishing because I was in LA. I had no outside interests. Everything I did was live, breathe, work, sleep. I just wanted photo. Right. And then as the industry changed, social media hit. I saw social media turn my friends inside out. I saw it turn the industry inside out. I said, I don't really want to do this anymore. I love photography and I don't want any part of what's coming. And so I decided, you know, I start, slowly started to like break from the, the path. And all of a sudden, it was like 2010. I quit photography. Blurb reached out and asked if I wanted to work with them. And all of a sudden, I had this ability to step back and sort of look at from a treetop level. And I was like, wow, I'm, I have all these other interests that I've squashed down for so long that are coming back. You know, my mother taught me to fly fish when I was probably in second or third grade. And she and I would fish together in Wyoming. We would fish together in Texas. It was a big part of like our relationship. My father and I were, um, you know, he was a competitive shooter. I was a competitive shooter. We'd go dove and quail and duck hunting and all that stuff together. 
And I was like, there's so many cycling with my brother running. I was a runner in middle school, runner in high school. And I was like, I want to do these things again. And that was like the tip of the iceberg. And I, and I just felt this enormous pressure off of the photography angle. But it also, at the same time, freed up enough time for me to do the kind of photography that I wanted to without having to do any other kind of photography. I wasn't like doing assignments to make money and, you know, saying, oh, this sucks. I'm not happy. This is a horrible assignment, but I'm, you know, I need the money. In L.A., I remember doing a shoot. I did a shoot for a fixture company. It's one of the it's one of the big fixture companies in the world. It's based out of Europe. So you're talking about like bathroom appliance and fixtures. Right. And, you know, they're a fixture company, but they they hold like parties in L.A. So it tells you the kind of <laughs> level that they're at. And I was at this thing shooting and I was making a pretty decent amount of money for it. And I was just like, what am I doing? Like, what am I doing in this place with these people making these pictures? There is nothing about this I like or want or want to do. And so that was sort of the beginning of me taking a step back and saying, I don't want to do this. But I mean, the, right. the people that I'm most interested in, the best photographers I know, Mm -hmm. They are talented, educated, and probably more than anything else, they're curious. So right. they're constantly, you know, they're the people that are going to, you take a walk in the afternoon and there's a curve in the road, they're going to go see what's around the curve. That's right. just built in, you know, and they are interested in music in literature in art in history and context and politics and everything else. I mean, they're intimidating because... <laughs> They remind right. you in some cases, you know, I have a friend here in town who's a painter that every time I'm around him, I just go, I don't know anything. I just don't know anything yet. And then other photographers the same way, you know, I do, to be fair, I know people who do nothing but photography and they're good too. Right. Um, they're not as fun to hang around with. <laughs> Let's face it, in photography today, because so much of it is a popularity contest tied to social and metrics. Right. You have to be myopic in a way that's incredibly unhealthy. You, you right. have it, it benefits you to be as selfish as you possibly can and turn every narrative that's being directed in front of you back to yourself. Right. You know, it's a bizarre if, if anyone who came up prior to this, it's a really bizarre, unnatural <laughs> feeling. You know, I, I was up out last weekend just for an overnight and I was up mm -hmm. north of hours and I was shooting some stills and making some video footage and just kind of haphazardly because I was there to fish and hike basically. Right. But I came back and I cut it together into this little thing and it's probably like four minutes long and I go, oh, wow, I kind of like this. Like this is about a location that many people probably don't know that much about. So it could be kind of fun to put on YouTube. But I realized like I don't have enough. If I don't film myself, like I don't know what I'm going to make of this. And then the idea <laughs> of like filming myself is so awful and mortifying that i'm like i just don't like anything about this but yet that's sort of the, that's how the main you know bulk of youtube films are created is just people turning it, they're making them people making themselves the story and not the story right. being the driving factor and from a journalism perspective that's very counterintuitive because you know in college when we had to do a self-portrait assignment with a four by five there was like mutiny on the bounty everyone was like this is ridiculous you know why are we wasting time there's stories to be told and they were like nope you got to do a self-portrait and now it's like <laughs> long. you know right. people shoot a hundred selfies in a day and i'm like i, I was born in the wrong <laughs> it seems like one of the questions you get periodically is where do i get ideas for projects 
And it seems to me, you know, that's probably is easier for people who have a pretty healthy curiosity about the world. From a journalistic standpoint, you got to cover whatever story comes along, right? And, and sometimes people say, well, that's not my story to tell. Maybe people feel like they don't have a personal take on it or maybe, uh, or an original take on it. Just wanna what kind of what was your experience in journalism with stories that maybe you didn't feel close to, but you had to tell that story anyway? Well, yeah, I mean, in journalism, you don't get a choice. It's not <laughs> right. Like, you know, you show up and they go, these are your assignments. And you don't say, well, I don't like white nationalist groups. You know, I don't want to photograph those guys. <laughs> we didn't ask you, right. we assigned this to you and you go. I'll give you a perfect example. We were talking about this before this talk started. I, I had been at the, an intern at the newspaper for a week. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I, and I had a degree in photojournalism, but I didn't know anything about what I was doing. I didn't know how to be a photographer. I barely could like find my way to the paper. This was pre, you know, GPS. I had a Thomas guide <laughs> and I'm like trying to find the paper. And I got in there and I, the photo editor, I think recognized immediately how hungry I was. And my images were like in focus. That, that's what I had going for me was I could come back with something in focus. I wasn't going to say mm -hmm. it was masterful. but And so for him, I was like a sense of relief because right. it didn't matter how bad the assignment was. He could give it to me and I would pretty much go and be like, cool, I get a city council meeting. This is going to be great in a windowless room with fluorescent lights. I can't wait. But it was at the end of the first week of being there. He goes, um, hey, I need you to fly to Alabama to find Charles Barkley's family's house and see if they'll let you get into the house and photograph his family during the NBA finals, where right. the he was playing for the Phoenix Suns at the time. And they were in the NBA finals against the Bulls, maybe. I can't remember who it was. And I was like, I was like, you don't want to send me. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. And he, I remember he looked at me and he goes, go home, have a beer, relax. You're going. And so I was like, oh, you know, I had I had a bag of lighting equipment that another photographer had given me that turns out was a bag of broken equipment, which I think he gave to me on purpose. <laughs> I was too young to rent a car. So the paper had to wrangle somehow get me a rental car. I told you I drove into Leeds, Alabama, and I was just driving street by street, like asking people, hey, you know where Charles Barkley lives? The cops pulled me over. And the cops like, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm looking for Charles Barkley's house. And he was like, oh, follow me. And so I drove over and his mother and his grandmother were in the backyard. I was like loitering in the front yard. And this is in the middle of like a neighborhood. There's, you know, I stood out very clearly. And the grandmother, who was fantastic, right. says to me, like, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, and she goes, get over here, you know, get in the yard. And they like took me right in, man. They, I was eating with them. I watched the games with them. And I was like, wow. And I, you know, I like basketball, but am I a sports photographer? No. Was I prepared to like know the dynamic of how to get into environments like that? No, but you just did, you just went and you did it. And, right. and what I loved about the newspaper was it was sink or swim. There was no nobody's holding your hand. Nobody's giving you a trophy if you don't deserve it. It was like, you got to earn this. And the right. competition level was really high. There were two papers out of the same building owned by the same owners, an afternoon paper in the morning, and they were like cutthroat competitive. So you always had the pressure not only to perform in the field, but if there was a photographer from the competing paper there at the same scene, you were going to be judged every time against them. And if you didn't stack up against them, you were going to hear it 
from somebody. Was it going to be the photo editor, another photographer? Could be their photo editor, their other photographers talking smack saying, you know what, dude, we just, we just crushed you on this thing. And so, again, that pressure of like, I need to perform. And that, I think, was really set the stage for the rest of my life of knowing, you know, I need to focus and work and complete tasks because the clock's ticking. You mentioned Dancing on Fire by Maggie Stever, which is a book I became familiar with from you. You you reviewed it. You've you've interviewed her. You know, on the surface, I, I haven't met her. On the surface, you wouldn't think that was her story to tell, right? The Haitian Revolution in the 90s. Like you could tell she invested the time into making that book, right? That's not a that's not a book I'm going to fly to Haiti and put together over a weekend, right? She developed the relationships, got the access she needed. And there's some violent imagery yeah. in there. And she's right in the middle of it. And, and, and again, I haven't met her, but I don't get the sense that she's an imposing physical figure. <laughs> but she was uh, right in the middle of it, capturing all of this action. And so maybe as a way to talk about projects and the investment that's required to do one of a long term like that because this i mean she invested years into this kind of contrast that against what we talked about earlier working on a daily newspaper where it's a new story every day yeah the the paper you know occasionally so typically you're a daily assignment photographer the paper i was at in particular had maybe three or four photographers, both papers had maybe three or four. When it came time for longer term projects, mm -hmm. typically it was one of those three or four people that were slotted to get that work. Right. Uh, the competing paper did a thing called the Navajo Project. And it was an attempt by their paper to try to win a Pulitzer Prize. And they assigned a guy named Mark Henley, who's a great photographer, a really fun guy. Also one of the only humans I've ever met who's won the lottery twice. So <laughs> we got the guy's right. blessed in some way, shape, or form. But Henley, you know, long-term guy. We had a guy named uh, Mike Ging, who was a photographer. And anytime there was a story that involved the Native American reservations, Mike was the guy that got those stories. But I would get like scraps. I would I would do my daily assignments, but I was constantly looking for stories. And occasionally I would get like a picture package where if I went out and I shot something and wrote it myself and I delivered it completed, then there was a chance if there was a breakdown at some point where there was space in the paper, they'd have something to run. So I got a, quite a few of those because I was constantly putting those into the box, the editor's box at the paper saying, hey, I've done this. It's already done. Right. To do long-term projects like that, I mean, first of all, when it comes to Maggie and Haiti, first of all, she's a gem of a person. So um, she's a really fun person to be around. I think the energy that she puts out is definitely picked up on by the people around her. You know, some photographers are aggressive, they're arrogant, they're hard to be around and everyone, are, you know, they may make great images, but everyone's like, God, it feels like a chore to be around them. Maggie's the polar opposite, but just the fact that she speaks Creole so mm -hmm. she learned how to speak Creole right there. That separates 99% of the other photographers out right there. Right. So to spend enough time to be able to speak that language and to go down there as a female photographer in the midst of that turmoil, which was, as to your point, some hardcore, you know, dead bodies in front of you, right. people getting shot, people getting clubbed, uh, lots of craziness happening. But that is that. And, and I'll, I'll sum it up this way. Uh, it takes a, it's a very different mentality. It's a different kind of research. It's a different kind of patience. Uh, 
access, time in the field and access, you cannot substitute for those two things. The more time in the field you have, the more access you have, the better your images are gonna be. But one of my instructors in college was also flying to Haiti at that time. Um, he did not, he didn't do the work that Maggie did. He was not at that, maybe not at the photographic level, but also maybe just didn't have the time to go down and put it in. But I, I distinctly remember him telling me about this. When I asked him what it was like, he said, the plane is empty when you're flying in. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that's such a great way of describing what it's like to be in that scenario. And, and fast forward to like 96, I had, I had on a chance encounter, um, I, was, I had come out of the newspaper world, I was freelancing for newspapers and I was also starting to freelance for magazines. So I was getting like two day, three day assignments, which was like, right. at, for me at the time was like a lifetime. I couldn't believe I'd, I'd get that much time. And I had a chance encounter with an American guy um, in a coffee shop in Laguna Beach, California, who ran and was founding a law school in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. And there okay. was no law schools there. The general Khmer population didn't know they had a set of laws to govern their society. And he's a really famous um, attorney from up in San Francisco, a civil rights guy from back in the 60s. And, and two weeks later, I landed in Phnom Penh and he met me at the airport and I was going to do assignments for him. Right. And, I was like, this is um, crazy. And as I was flying in to, to um, Phnom Penh at the time, this was 96, the Khmer Rouge had executed some backpackers. There was some fighting happening in the northeastern part of the countries and in the southern part of the country. Those were sort of off limits because the Khmer Rouge were still controlling those parts. And I flew in and the plane was empty except for nuns. Mm -hmm. And I was like, this is not good. And then in my seat back pocket in front of me to make matters worse, I, I reach in and there's a copy of Soldier of Fortune magazine. <laughs> and it and the cover story is like under fire in Cambodia. And I was like, what have I get? What am I getting myself into? And it was I was there for about a month. And it was just so eye-opening and I knew I was like this is what I want to do and there were tons of like little tense moments of like getting robbed at gunpoint and thinking we're going to get RPG'd by these guys in the jungle who turned out to be Khmer Rouge defectors and not Khmer Rouge and um, you know there were tons of those things and and getting in a car in Phnom Penh and trying to get to Kampot in the south and the driver's like hide in the back seat I'm going to go 100 miles an hour <laughs> someone may shoot at us as we go down there but like I can't stop Right. So I was like, this is what I want to do. There's, there's nowhere else I want to be. <laughs> I just want to keep doing this, but it just takes, you know, so much time and energy. And it's why so much of that work is not being done anymore is because no one wants to pay for it. Right. You know, they want an image on a micro influencer on social media to post something and drive up numbers. And that like in-depth stuff is just, it's a battle. It's a battle to get that done. Right. Are are there even a handful of people or, or organizations still funding that sort of work? Or is it? Oh, yeah, 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 for sure. I mean, you have agencies like Magnum and Seven and mm -hmm. Vu and, and those agencies that are scattered around the world. They've got really, um, Noor is another one out of Amsterdam. They have a, they have a really great staff of photographers. Um, Catchlight is an organization out of the Bay Area that does um, local and nat nationwide journalism. They do a bunch of really cool stuff, and it's outside of journalism. It's just fantastic, you know, project-based, grant-based photography. Uh, yeah, so thankfully, there's a, there's photographers. I just saw a piece today 
Um, I think it's a Peruvian photographer who's a finalist for the Oscar Barnack Award. Okay. His last name, I think, is Cinque, C-I-N-Q-U-E. Never mm -hmm. heard of him. Never seen any of the work. It's really good. Really good photography. So, you know, I looked at that body of work and I was like, man, I'd be stoked if that was mine. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's ha thankfully it's happening. You know, I mean, I think there's still the people who read The New Yorker, mm -hmm. The Atlantic, you know, the Paris Review, those kind of things. These are people that don't want to look at social media. They know that there's they're never, ever going to get the real straight story right. on social media. That's not why the platforms were designed. They need to find it somewhere else. And somebody has to go and do those stories. And so thankfully, yes, there's still still people doing it. The other example to kind of talk about some of these topics was something that you helped bring into the world, and that was AG23. So wanted to talk about the collaboration aspect, but first, sort of continuing on the storytelling theme, there were two, well, well, first, why don't you tell everybody what AG23 is and where it's at right now? So AG23 was a collaboration between a guy named Rick Elder mm -hmm. and myself. <clears throat> and Rick was the CEO and director of a clothing brand out of Seattle called Beyond. And the only reason that AG exists is Rick. And he would argue that and he would say, no, that's not true because he's very self-deprecating, but it is very true. He's the one who was the guy who sparked the idea. I was a little bit reluctant at first because I knew how expensive and how difficult and time-consuming it would be. And so he's pretty relentless and we decided to do this and it's a zine, which is an informal or underground magazine. Uh, zines have been around for a long, long time, but they really exploded on the scenes back in the 1930s. And now there's about 30,000 different zines published in the U.S. every year alone. So not including the rest of the international market. The zine, zine community is vibrant. It's young. It's democratic. And basically, our mission statement was we want to do a printed piece whose mission statement is to create, create to, to further education and understanding through dialogue and art. And we just want to publish stories that we find interesting and put those stories into the world. The zine is free. We want, we want it to transfer from hand to hand. Um, and then Rick, because he's Rick was able, and also working for a clothing brand, you know, we had a, we had a merchandise line of shirts where the money would be donated back to the, uh, you know, to the zine. And we, he and I were senior co-editors and we managed to pull off two issues before he left in, as in his position as CEO and director, went to a totally unrelated separate brand. And the new person at Beyond was like, I don't know what this is. Like, why would we be doing this? And it's a very weird scenario because <laughs> technically, you know, I work for Blurb. He works for Beyond. Blurb printed the zine through our large order services division, but there's nothing in the zine about either brand. Right. And the crazy thing is, anytime you do something new or you do something like this, we live in a culture where the haters have a, a big voice. The haters are always going to hate whatever it is you do. So right. I told him, I told Rick, I said, look, some photographers are going to hate this. They're going to turn this against you and the brand and Blurb and me, and they're going to be <laughs> personal and mean and awful. And sure enough, they were because it was new. And they would they would trash us and then open the zine and say, where's everything about Blurb and the clothing brand? Like they wouldn't listen to anything that we said. So they'd open it and you'd see all this work from all these creatives and photographers and writers and designers. And there's nothing in there. And it, it would almost make the situation worse. So I was like, man, this is such a bizarre thing. 
but it's really about brand collaboration without the brands turning it into a sort of phony marketing exercise. Right. And it's about creative, it's about creative collaboration and, and about community building. And there's a beautiful website. Um, Jay Neely is the one who built the website. Zoe Sadkirsky is a designer out of Sydney. She's one of my all-time favorite people in the design world and just a wonderful human being. She did the design. And Beyond was really the bankroll. You know, Blurb, we paid uh, full price for the printing through Blurb's large order. And, you know, Blurb technically handled the printing. But my goal right now, because Beyond is out as a sponsor, mm -hmm. and I don't know if this is going to work or not, <laughs> but I would really like Blurb to be involved mm -hmm. in in the zine without turning it into a marketing piece. I think we should be, as a platform that supports print and supports creatives and collaboration, we should be doing the same thing that Rick and I have been doing from the beginning, which is finding great stories and right. publishing these and putting it out and paying and promoting the people in the zine. That's what we should be doing. So it's a it's a very very busy time at blurb right now there's there's not only new new products coming but we're also going into the holiday season so it's absolutely chaos from now until probably mid-december right so i'm hoping once we get into the new year um the new calendar year that we that we'll have a little bit of space to look at it and say this is something we should be doing right well i hope so and and what i can add you know in terms of using it as a launch pad to go and explore these different people and, and the work that they've done, you know, from issue one, I reached out to Frank Jackson and we had several conversations. Of course, his contribution to issue one was about his cup. Oh yeah. Uh, project. But I would like to speak to him on this podcast about his uh, jazz musician images. The issue two, storytelling question i wanted to ask you about had to do with there was one story called ceremony by jane bachowski yeah which is sort of a female coming of age ceremony story for uh native americans and another story he threw the last punch too hard by hannah kozak mm -hmm. and so one of the things that jumps out to me about these two stories hannah's story is obviously very personal i don't know if it would be this I, you know maybe somebody else could tell that story but it wouldn't be the same story obviously and jan's is you know from the outsider perspective she wasn't going through the ceremony herself she was an observer and relayed that story to us so storytelling from within and without i kind of just Kind of what are some of your experiences and thoughts on telling stories from those two different perspectives, I guess? Well, I think it goes back to something you said a little while ago about I think a lot of people, especially new to photography, people who came up watching films on YouTube and stuff, they have a really hard time finding what finding topics. And that's right. always such a bizarre thing to me because I have a list of stories a mile long I'll never get to. Right. And so it speaks to the familiar, what's right in front of you that you've that's been a part. You know, Jan grew up in El Paso outside of the Mescalero Reservation. And so she would take trips with her grandmother as a kid to the to the Mescalero Reservation. And so she'd been around this her whole life. For someone like her to get access to a Native American reservation is a huge deal. That's really difficult. You don't walk on the res and start taking pictures. That's not how it works. You often have to go in front of the tribal council and that they're not often going to grant anybody kind of access. So the, the, the thing about Jan's work and, and Hannah's as well, it's about trust and it's about access. 
and it's knowing when to move forward and when to stay still and not say anything. And there's a lot of respect. And, you know, that story, she just won the Society of American Travel Writers Gold Award for Best Illustrated Narrative with that piece in AG. And, you know, I walked into a gallery in Santa Fe and I saw one of those images on the wall, the crown dancer fire. And I was like, wow, like who did that? And that when that's how I came to that story. And Hannah's mother was a victim of domestic violence and it left her um, with a you know, severe brain injury. And she's been in an assisted, assisted living facility for decades. And that book won all kinds of awards. It's an incredibly personal story. There is no one else that could tell that story, no one. And mm-hmm. Hannah, Hannah is herself. And the reason why we ran the Polaroids of her with bruises on her body was she was one of the elite female stunt women in the world. And because, you know, she'd been shooting pictures her whole life, but when she got injured, broke both ankles, jumping out of a helicopter, um, she had this time to like revisit the camera and it it sparked this, you know, fire in her again. And to live, you know, basically living with, with her mother having to go in and out of this facility all the time. Those stories are the kind of thing that speaks to a, a very, very deep conviction and familiarity. You, you have photographers who will look at what's hot and they will go try to do a story and copy someone who's done something hot. You know, a few yeah. years ago, um, a few years ago, Perry Photo, there was a guy named Peter Hugo that did this amazing portrait project. And I was like, that's a great project. He's a really good photographer. I went back to Perry Photo the next year. There were 10 projects that were ripoffs of Peter Hugo because it right. had seen, seen success gallery shows, book deal, and people look for the shortcuts. You know, they're like, oh, well, he had success. I'll go sort of copy that. And, you know, we'll we'll do like a subpar, you know, mimic of that and hopefully hope for the best. Right. And the best photographers are just drilling down. You know, they're mm-hmm. really, they're, they're curious. They're doing research. They're finding like that vein. You know, it's that it's that run of silver in the mountainside that everybody is searching and blasting for that vein. And then someone finds it and it just is like the one little storyline that hooks you in. And, um, it you know, it takes time, patience and practice. And that's you know, those are three things hard to come by. We've talked about books a couple of times and in your younger days, hoping to make a book and blurb and other you know, people have made this possible or, or more attainable for for everyone these days. And and this is true across a lot of different creative outlets. I mean, the Canon 5D Mark II introduced high definition video. All of a sudden I could go in my backyard and make a movie as high tech as Transformers or, or whatever. And on the music side, of course, you know, people can do fully produced CDs or albums or whatever they've called these days, uh, just on their laptop, you know, so there's all these tools that are accessible to creative people these days. And there's two sides to that, I suppose. Ever since Eastman said, you know, you push the button and we'll do the rest. They've been trying to make it easier and easier for people with image stabilization and autofocus and, you know, ISOs in the six digit figures, you know, they, they want to make it easy for people to do. And now we all have this thing in our pocket all day, every day, right? That's a camera. So everybody's a photographer now. And on the one hand, you know, it opened up that accessibility for everybody. And on the other hand, it, it you know, some might argue it has really watered down <laughs> all of these art forms. Uh, the fact that anybody can put anything out in, 
into the world. And you spoke a little bit about this, but kind of what are some of your thoughts along those lines? Yeah, I mean, I think digital photography was great because it 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 injected this sense of joy in the general population. Every mm -hmm. everyday people suddenly didn't have to deal with film and processing. The learning curve was not nearly as steep. You could see what you were doing. There was no driving to the photo lab. That was the that was the upside of the digital revolution. Mm -hmm. I think digital also injected new life into a stagnant professional photo industry that was really floundering when digital came along. And all of a sudden there was a new dialogue, a new conversation, a new something new to sell to clients. And it and also, you know, the Glenn Wexlers of the world and the who's an L.A. based photographer who had been a music photographer for years. He was doing album art for Van Halen and all these other bands. And suddenly, you know, he was like a master uh, analog retoucher. And all of a sudden the computer comes along and he's able to retouch in digital form and just becomes this like, you know, master of, of, of Photoshop. Right. So there's an upside to it. There has been the great deluge of, of imagery, and yes, it's watered things down tremendously. Having said that, there is the dialogue inside the professional world, the, the actual professional photography industry. People know what's good and what's not. Right. And there's a huge difference between influencer and photographer. And it is very, very rare I see an influencer who's a good photographer. Right. So that's a whole separate skill that is getting the bulk of the conversation these days are influencers. Photographers are fewer and far between. They're often working. They're very busy. They're harder to engage with. They're under more pressure. And so, but the dialogue is there, you know, Douglas Kirkland died last week. Mm -hmm. Everybody in the pro industry knows what that means. Like who that guy was, there is no one else like him. No one's going to make that work again. No one's going to get those assignments again. And everybody knows that like, that's the big boy level of, of photography, you know, and those projects and those people are out there and that work is still being done at basically the same pace it's been done at forever. You know, it's not like, it, it's just a, it's a weird thing. There, there's, there's parallel conversations happening in professional photography and it's professional online and professional industry. And they don't often, overlook but you know and it's not to say that these people who are doing professional level projects aren't using on using their cell phone all day right. and like posting what they had for lunch and all this stuff which to me is the crazy part you know i think i don't think that helps when you're at a certain level that stuff doesn't help to me it it just it detracts like the the right. best photographers i know i don't want to know them on social because it's not them it's not really them you know, when you right. see them and meet them and talk to them in person, they are very, very different people than they are in social. And right. I just think to myself, I don't want to waste time with the fake version of you. I want the real version of you because the real version of you is way more interesting than the fake version. And so, you know, just just stick to one thing. But, you know, that's the world. That's the world we live in now. I don't think there's any there's no putting the genie back in the bottle. It, similar question, but opening it up more to creativity in general. You know, this was a question someone asked you recently, and you made a film about it, about talking them out of buying the the new camera, whatever the fancy new toy is. Um, yeah. But not just for photography, but creativity in general. You know, it's the nature of life is that things change, things evolve. I'm sure when we went from painting to photography 
and then from film to digital and then still images to video and then there's drones and then there's AI and you know there's two groups of people right or or at least two groups one that embrace these new tools that that unlock this creativity and inspire them to do work maybe that they weren't able to do before or lets them do it easier or or just opens up completely new possibilities for them and it's other group of people that are you know their their heels are in the sand they're dug in they're not they're against change they don't like it for whatever reason how did you get out of your comfort zone to be able to embrace additional tools and techniques that were available to you to tell a story well, I mean, it, this goes way back for me. So I got a job with Eastman Kodak in 1997. I was living in Southern California. Um, I realized that I was doing all these assignments that weren't making me a better photographer. I, and I and I was right. like, I don't want to, I'm, you know, I'm shooting these for these editorial clients. On the outside, it looks like, wow, you've made it. Like you got all these editorial clients and I'm just like, this work sucks. These assignments are bad. I don't like this work. And so I quit. And right. I was faced with either getting out of photography or... Kodak comes along and says, we need a technical field rep in Southern California. And, I, and my wife and a couple of other people put a word in for me and I got this job. And this was right when Kodak came out with the DCS 520 and the 560. These were like the first high-end digital cameras. You could do a six column newspaper page. You could shoot catalog, you could shoot portraits with them. You know, compared to today's standards, obviously very much a joke, but at the time a big deal. and. You know, I was like, wow, I should probably learn about this stuff. So I learned how to use those. I learned how to position them in the market. I convinced people to buy those. Even though I wasn't a sales rep, I was more of a guy of influence saying, you know, wow, you're shooting whatever, 60 rolls of 220 a day. Why don't you just, you know, that's X amount of film and processing for your clients. Why don't you use a 560? It's 30,000 up front, but you're going to pay for it in six months. Your ROI makes sense. You know, that kind of thing. And I just wanted to be aware of these things. You know, I wanted, I always wanted a Hasselblad. I could never afford a Hasselblad while film was, was king. And then suddenly film wasn't king. And I bought a Hasselblad and a lens and a back and a finder for 65 bucks total. And I, <laughs> you know, I was like that I can afford. And right. I played with it and tested it and used it and did projects with it. And I think today it's the same. I bought a drone. I used it for a while. I said, I don't need this. You know, it's not adding to my stories. I loaned it to a friend here in town who's a pilot. He uses it all the time. Right. I use digital. I use film. I use um, mixed media. I will try anything. I'm using GoPros and 360 cameras. And, uh, you know, I'm shooting motion and stills and recording sound and writing and just constantly trying to evolve um, right. and find what works. It's project by project, really, basis. Uh, you know what's going to work on this project at what time what 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 time do i have what resources do i have what restrictions am i under for blurb 99 percent of what i'm doing for blurb is going to be digital because i can turn it around quickly you know right. for the first first like seven or eight years of my blurb career i was traveling the world with a polaroid camera <laughs> my Hasselblad, my leicas a canon 5d3 system and I was using all of it mm. and, and blurb would wait for that film to come back and they would, we would use it and it was utilized in a way. And the people on the team were like, we get it. We know why this is cool. And we like the whole sort of lifestyle around film and the ephemera and all that. And that's not the case anymore. You know, it's just a different, right. it's a different time. Things are really fast. 
Um, imagery is not consumed the way it was back then. It's very, very, very short and things are then tossed out as considered mature in a very short amount of time. And no matter how good they are, what they are, they're sort of in and out. And so, um, yeah, it's, a, it's just a, a changing of the times. Again, I think it goes back to curiosity. Right. It's like, I don't know what that, if, if there's something out there that I don't know about it, like I'll experiment, test it, try it, see what it's like and factor it in and some, maybe I'll use it, maybe I won't. Right. But I think, you know, there's a lot of people, the, the online community really is not about the imagery. And at, at the end of the day, any, any to me legitimate photographer is gonna say one thing, let's see the work, right. let's see the images. Show, no, none, nothing else matters. What's the take? What did you get? Let's see it, lay it out. Can you edit? Do you know how to sequence? Do you know what good imagery actually is? And frankly, that is where a sizable percentage of the photography community falls down. You know, I was fortunate. I have a formal education in photography. I spent 30 years like immersed in this. All of my friends are photographers. My wife is a photographer. Um, I'm around industry people all the time. I'm leaving after this talk. I'm going into Santa Fe to meet another photographer who went to the University of Western Kentucky has a degree in PJ. You know, everywhere I go, I'm surrounded by this. And so I've been putting work in front of trained people for the last 35 years, people that would say right to your face, this is not good enough. You know, you screwed up, right? Go out, do it again, work harder, be smarter, learn your craft better. And there was that, like, there was always somebody behind you with their hands on your back, pushing you forward. And a lot of people who grew up in the online space never had that luxury. They never, you know, and if you put images out online and you think you're going to get like legitimate, honest, constructive feedback, you're probably mistaken <laughs> because if that's not really what it's designed for. You know, if I remember 10 years ago being invited into this like forum and it was, you know, critiquing. Right. And I was like, you know, there was one image where it was a decent image, but the photographer should have moved like a half a foot to the side. And then it would have, you know, and I was like, oh, if you move to the side, you do this. They, they barred me. <laughs> you know, they were like, you, you can't say that. You, you can't say that the image isn't right, you know, that they could have done better. And I was like, what? And so, you know, it's a whole different scenario of, of people. You know, the like button to me does not have a whole lot of relevance. The the idea of how many subscribers you have, that stuff, it just, it has almost, it's just inconsequential to me when it comes to that statement, show me the work. Like right. you, at some point you got to put it in front of people. And if you put it in front of people who know what good photography is, you might have a good experience or you might have a nice, sober, cold shower. <laughs> Right, right. And as it can't think of a, a better insight to close up on, Dan, I, I really do appreciate your time. So is shifter.media the place to send people who want to follow along and see what all you've been up to? That's it. Shifter.media. That's about, you know, 5% of my life, but it's a, it's a 5% that I really like. And, right. uh, I've been blogging and, and had a website since for a long time. I think 2001 or 2002 was when I started that. So it's a lot of fun. It's not, uh, it's kind of all over the place, books and adventure and, and um, creative stuff. But yeah, and, and I'm easy to find my contacts on there. All right. Well, thanks again, Dan. I really appreciate your time and insights. 
Of course, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And what we didn't get to talk about, which we should next time, is the history of photography and the music industry. The oh, yeah. William Claxton and Jim Marshall and Annie Leibovitz and Herman Leonard and all these amazing connections between photography and the music industry. That's yeah. a good one. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> thanks again, Dan. Thank you. Thanks again to Dan Milner for taking time out of his schedule to share some of his experiences. You can find more from Dan at shifter.media. Many of the names we discussed are in the show notes, and I encourage you to do a deeper dive into the work of those individuals as well. Our theme song, Timeless, is from Mike Gutterman at mikegutterman.bandcamp.com. Check out all of Mike's music along with the cassettes he's now offering on his Bandcamp page. Thanks as always to the team over at Sunny16 for hosting the Sunny16 Presents feed. You can get in touch with them at sunny16presents at gmail.com. And of course, as our friend John Whitmore might say, always try and be a decent human being.